tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Well, good morning. This morning we are continuing our series going through the signs of Jesus as presented in John's Gospel. And as Dave opened up this series for us a couple weeks ago, he talked about our guiding passage as we go through these signs. And it comes from chapter 20 of John's Gospel, where John writes that Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And as Dave said, that's our purpose throughout this series, to examine each of these signs of Jesus that John presents and see how it does point to Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. And today we're going to do that by looking at the story of Jesus healing the official's son, which comes at the end of John chapter 4. But let's open up with prayer. Heavenly Father, what a gift we have in your word. We thank you that over thousands of years you have inspired the human authors to write these words, that you have preserved these words, and they've been copied so carefully through the generations. We thank you for modern translators who stay true to the original meaning, yet put them in a language that we can understand. And we thank you for inventions over the years, like the printing press and now smartphones, which enable all of us to have access to your word. And we recognize, God, that as we read and study your word, that we cannot hope to understand its riches on our own. And so this morning we ask for your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's look at our passage for today. John chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 43, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. After the two days, he, Jesus, left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his home country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. And the royal official said, Sir, Come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. And the man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. And this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. There's a worship song that was released back in 2019 called Highlands. 
Maybe you know it, maybe you don't. The first couple words of that song, first couple lines say, how high would I climb mountains if the mountains were where you, Jesus, hide? And how far would I scale the valleys if you graced the other side? I think that these words from these songs pose an interesting question to us. Say Jesus was physically present somewhere in the world. How far would you go and how hard would you work to seek him out and be in his presence? Another interesting question I think to ask is who else besides those who believe might be trying to find Jesus? As I thought about this, I can think of at least three groups of people who might be seeking Jesus. First, perhaps most obviously, there are those who truly, truly believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And for them, that's all the reason they need to seek to be in his presence. I also think there would be lots of people who maybe have heard some things or believe some things about Jesus. Maybe they believe some of what the Bible says about him, believe some of what Jesus taught, and revere and respect him in many ways. But they're not quite sure who Jesus is exactly. And so maybe they'd be seeking him out to try to answer that question. Who is Jesus? And then I think there'd be those who throughout their life probably haven't given Jesus a lot of thought. But maybe these people have illnesses or disabilities and they've heard that Jesus can heal, and so they're going to seek him out to see if he can heal them from their infirmity. <clears throat> but today, as we go through this passage, we're going to see examples of all three of these types of belief. And I would call these belief that Jesus can, Jesus can do signs and wonders, a belief in what Jesus teaches, at least part of it, and then there's the belief, as John said, that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. And we're going to start right where we left off last time, which was the wedding at Cana in Galilee where Jesus turned water into wine. That story opens up John chapter 2, and typically John's chapters 2 through 4 are all kind of lumped together and known as Jesus's early ministry. And our passage for today, John 4, uh, comes at the very end of that. So what's happened kind of in between these two events, these two signs. Well, we're told that Jesus travels to Jerusalem for Passover. And we know the story, how Jesus clears the temple courts of the money changers and those who were selling. And John records in his gospel that Jesus performed many signs in Jerusalem, although he doesn't tell us what those signs are. And of course, Jesus attracts the, uh, attracts the attention of Nicodemus. And Donna read, that for us today, where Nicodemus comes to Jesus. If we think about those types of belief that we just talked about, what do we see with Nicodemus? Well, Nicodemus comes recognizing that Jesus can perform signs, and he therefore must be from God in some way. But then Jesus also said to Nicodemus, I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. So how then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? So Nicodemus, at least in this point in his life, seems to be able to only recognize that Jesus can do signs and wonders, but he's not yet ready to believe what Jesus says, and he certainly doesn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah or Son of God. After that, Jesus spends some time in the Judean wilderness doing some baptizing, and there's the story of the end of, of the ministry of John the Baptist. 
But then Jesus leaves Judea and travels back to Galilee, and he passes through Samaria in the town of Sychar. And here we have the, the well-known story of Jesus meeting the woman at the well. And as they go through this conversation, the woman starts to believe what Jesus is telling her. And she goes to her fellow townspeople and says, come and met this man who's told me all I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? And so I think in this woman we have an example of someone who believes what Jesus is telling her. But as she asks, could this be the Messiah? She's not quite sure what to make out of him yet. And so John tells us, as he wraps up this story, that Jesus stayed in Sychar for two more days, and the whole village comes to believe in Jesus as the Savior of the world through his teaching. And so it progresses from the woman believing in his words to the whole village believing in Jesus as the Messiah and Son of God. And that brings us to our passage in John chapter 4. We're told that Jesus continues his travels north from Samaria into Galilee, and then in verse 44, John gives us a quote from an ancient proverb. A prophet has no honor in his own country. These are likely familiar words to us. They appear in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels. And in those instances, Jesus is the one speaking those words after a time when he has been rejected. The placement of this quote is a little interesting because as you read on, at first glance, it doesn't seem like it fits because it says a prophet has no honor in his own country, and the very next verse says that the Galileans welcomed Jesus. If you read a little bit further, I think it kind of explains, explains it for us. John says they welcomed Jesus because they had been in Jerusalem for Passover, and they had saw the signs that he had performed there. And so I think John is pointing out that the extent of the belief that the Galileans had was just based off of what that they had seen. They had seen his signs and wonders. They weren't really following his teachings yet, and they certainly weren't recognizing him as the Messiah and Son of God. So we move on, verse 46, we're introduced to this royal official and told that his son is at the point of death. And he requests in verse 47 that Jesus come and heal his son. Jesus responds, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Seems a little bit harsh of a response, at least at first. Especially since this man was really just earnestly seeking Jesus' help for his son. But I don't think that Jesus was talking just to this royal official. Notice his words. He says, unless you people believe. Perhaps he's talking to more. And given what John had just said, quoting that a prophet has no honor in his home country, and that the Galileans welcomed him solely because of the signs and wonders that they had seen, I think what we see here is Jesus is confronting the Galileans, saying, signs and wonders is all you're about, and unless you see them, you're not going to believe. It's tempting for us to take this royal official and I think put him in the same group, but I would actually argue that there's a little bit more to his faith for several reasons. Translations tell us that he's a royal official, which means that he would have been a representative of Herod Antipas, who was the king of Galilee at this time. Royal officials had a relatively high standing in society, and so for someone of this standing to seek out, someone like Jesus, who was viewed perhaps as a lower social class, as were his disciples, 
would have been a little bit of a swallow your pride kind of moment for him. If his peers found out about it, they would have mocked him, they would have laughed at him, and they would have thought he was a little bit crazy. What are you doing? But this royal official was willing to risk his reputation to find Jesus. I think in assessing his faith, we should also consider how far he travels and what he leaves behind. The text tells us that he comes from the town of Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee up to the town of Cana. As the crow flies, that's a distance of about 18 miles and with an elevation gain of about 2,000 feet. So a full day's journey for this man at the very least. And he makes this journey, and specifically he makes this journey when his son is at the very point of death. You can imagine as a father that the last thing that he would want to do is leave only to have his son die while he's gone. And yet he's willing to risk that. He's willing to travel this distance just to seek out Jesus. And as we proceed further into the passage, I think we see more signs of this royal official's belief as well. After Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe, his response is, sir, come down before my child dies. I think this shows us a little bit more belief, not just that Jesus can, but specifically that Jesus is the only one who can heal his son. If Jesus does not come, his son will die. Earlier in the text, it said that he had heard Jesus was back in Galilee, which indicates he was waiting for Jesus to return. So there's this belief that Jesus is the only one who can heal his son. And so this, Jesus responds, go, your son will live. Notice here that Jesus does not give the royal official what he asked for. The request was that he would come with him to see his son and then heal him. But Jesus merely speaks these words. <clears throat> and yet, we are told that this official believes those words. The NIV says he takes Jesus at his word. And that brings us to the second level of belief that we talked about at the beginning. The belief not just in what Jesus can do, but the belief in what Jesus says. And so he believes what Jesus says and believes that his son will live. Now, belief in what Jesus says is important. It is a part of our faith, but it is not the same thing as believing that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. We can look at many of the major world religions for examples of that. The Jews say that Jesus was a great teacher who had disciples perform miracles and was crucified. But they do not believe that Jesus was re resurrected from the dead, and they don't believe that he was the Messiah. Muslims recognize that Jesus was born of a virgin. They see him as a revered prophet, a wise teacher, and a miracle worker, and they say he did, in fact, ascend into heaven. But they say that he never actually died, and that, therefore, he was never resurrected and he is not the Son of God. Even the Far Eastern religions have beliefs about Jesus. Hindus generally recognize Jesus as a holy man and a wise teacher and one of many gods which they have in their religion. And Buddhists recognize Jesus as an enlightened and wise teacher, but they do not think that he was divine at all. 
And even in our own culture, you hear those who might describe themselves as atheists say things like, Jesus was a wise man, a good teacher. We could follow what he teaches. But they are certainly not willing to recognize Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. So as important for us as it is for us to believe what Jesus teaches, there's more to our belief than that. So going back to our story, the official does what Jesus tells him to do. He believes his words, and he returns home. And the fact that he believes and obeys is kind of a key point here. This passage doesn't tell us if the official had any doubts about whether his son would be alive. I would imagine he did. It wasn't until the next day till he hears that his son is alive. So you can imagine him traveling back with only the words of Jesus to assure him that his son is alive until the next day. But he continues on his journey anyway, and perhaps not that big of a hurry. It takes him until the next day to get home. And then verse 51, it tells us that he's met by his servants who tell him his son is alive. And he asked what time his son got better. And of course, it was the previous day at one in the afternoon. Verse 53 says that was the exact time which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And so it closes out, he and his whole household believed, and this indicates that this royal official and his household had then come to recognize Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. So what exactly is it about this healing that makes the royal official and his household believe? Or what is this sign telling us? It's important that Jesus heals the man's son, but there's a lot of people that Jesus heals throughout his ministry. And yet, John chose this specific sign of the many to include in his gospel for a very specific reason. I would argue that it's not just the fact that Jesus heals the official's son, but it's how he heals the son that's important. He heals him from nearly 20 miles away just by speaking the words. And the healing happens at the exact time that Jesus said his son will live. This shows us that Jesus has authority over creation. He's exercising his authority over space and time because he can heal from a great distance and instantaneously merely by speaking the words. This is actually an illustration of what scholars call transcendence. When spoken of with God, it means that God is independent of creation and yet has authority over it. One example of God's transcendence, Psalm 102, which says, In the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be discarded. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. That shows us that Jesus, or God, is both outside of what he has created and has authority over it. And so Jesus, in this sign, through sowing his transcendence, shows his divine nature, and there shows that he is the Messiah and the Son of God. But there's more. God is not just transcendent. God is also imminent. The word imminent actually comes from the same Hebrew words as the name Emmanuel, which, especially at Christmas time, we know means God with us. 
So God's imminence refers to what the name suggests, his presence within his creation. And as you read through the Bible, Old and New Testament, there are story after story after story that shows God is with his people. He is imminent. One example, if you think back to when God travels with the Israelites through the desert after the Exodus, it says he travels with them as a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. A very strong visual sign of God's imminence among his people. In this sign, with the healing of the official's son, Jesus' imminence is also clear. He was present. You can see him. You could hear him. You could reach out and touch him. Jesus was clearly imminent with his people. And through the words that Jesus spoke, go, your son will live, the official believes and eventually comes to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and Son of God. Today, of course, we don't have the incarnate Jesus walking among us, but God is still imminent. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he tells his disciples that he will be with them always, even until the end of the age. And we also know, as we've mentioned throughout this service, that the Holy Spirit is with us. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you and whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? So Jesus is both transcendent, possessing authority over all of creation, and Jesus is also imminent. He is still with us even today. That shows us that Jesus is, as John wrote, the Messiah and the Son of God, and that identity of him is the basis of our faith. Not just that Jesus can perform miracles or that he was a wise teacher worthy of our attention. In our lives today, we all face trials at various times, and those trials might cause us to doubt God's transcendence and God's imminence. Why does God allow some of these things to happen? And is he really here with us? And I think what this sign shows us is that when such doubts come into our minds, it shows us how we should respond. First thing we should do is the first thing the official did in this story. Seek out God. The Holy Spirit dwells within each of us believers. And he has placed a desire to know God in our hearts. And so because of that desire, and because of the work that Jesus did, we can come directly into God's presence. We can seek his presence through prayer and worship. Second thing we should do, just like this royal official, we can believe God's words and his command to us. And again, it is the Holy Spirit who enables us to obey God's word. And through that obedience and through the Holy Spirit continuing to work on us, we will come to trust even more in the promises of God. And so through our coming to God and through our obeying his word and trusting his promises, God will strengthen our belief that Jesus is indeed the Messiah and the Son of God. So if we revisit those song lyrics I spoke at the beginning, to paraphrase, how high would we, would we climb mountains? 
And how far would we cross valleys to seek out Jesus? You know what the best part about this is? We don't have to go anywhere. God is always with us. And he invites us to exercise the faith that he has already given us. And through exercising that faith and through our obedience to his word, that will show God's presence to the world. And just as this royal official's household believed, may others come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and Son of God from our works as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are imminent in this world and that we do not have to seek you out. You are here with us. And we thank you that you are transcendent. You have authority over all of creation and there is nothing that you cannot do. So God, give us faith to fully trust in your word and to obey what it is you've commanded us to do. And in doing so, let our lives reflect both your transcendence and your imminence to this world. In Jesus' name.